I want to be very careful and prayerful with my words today, as I always should be. I want to ask right at the beginning that what I have to say will be guided entirely by the Holy Spirit of God. That he'll read it through, approve it and bring it to the editor's cutting room. This word comes from a conviction, an absolute conviction, that while Christmas announces the birth of Christ Jesus into this world, while Easter celebrates the death and bodily resurrection of the Lord of Heaven himself, and by this the words, it is finished, are written in the book of life, declaring victory over sin and death, I want to say, without Pentecost, there's still a job to be done. Because at Pentecost, Jesus handed the baton to his people and he said, now you're filled, now you're commanded, now you're enabled, so go and live and do the task of witnessing for me to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> I'm going to divide this talk into three sections, each very clear in the account of what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The first consideration is that God the Holy Spirit arrived with fire and wind. And the second, God the Holy Spirit reversed a judgment. And third, God the Holy Spirit brought good news to the nations. So, <clears throat> first, God the Holy Spirit arrived with fire and wind. Doug Allen <clears throat> has worked with David Attenborough for many years, and he describes hiding out in a small wooden shack waiting for camera shots of polar bears. He knows they're around but nothing quite prepares him for the snuffling and the scratching and the sheer size and bulk of the animal that's actually hunting him. What he expects is superseded by the truth of his encounter with a real polar bear. The people of God grew up with the scriptures, the prophecies and the stories of the past. From Joel, this one. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Yet nothing prepared them for the life-changing shake-up that was to follow on Pentecost. Because God's Holy Spirit arrived with fire and with wind. So many things must have been present in the disciples' minds beforehand. The ancient scriptures taught in the synagogues, the amazing miracles that Jesus had performed in their sight and sometimes through them themselves. The resurrection of the Lord. His promise to them that they would receive the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, says Jesus in Luke chapter 24 verse 49. And all this seems to lead quite obviously to the conclusion that God intended more for the disciples. 
And God arrived in power upon the disciples in a way that nothing could have prepared them for. <clears throat> there they were, having a long lockdown prayer meeting. Fifty days they'd been in and around Jerusalem, united and going about business in a formal enough way. They had settled the matter of who would become the twelfth disciple by an executive meeting and a vote. Aren't we good at organising things? Just imagine how quickly we can get things done when we put our minds to it. There's Captain Tom deciding on a whim to raise a few pounds for the NHS and within a week or two he's raised £33 million. Fantastic organisation and drive, not only by Captain Tom but by the many people who gathered around him to help him to collect that money. But... God did not have an organisation in mind when he arrived at Pentecost. He had something else so much greater. Baptism. Now, for the purpose of this talk, I want to simplify the notion of baptism to drenching. The disciples were drenched. They were infilled. They were dipped. They were swallowed up. In and by the Holy Spirit himself, he arrived in fire, purifying fire, flames that licked over the heads of the followers of Jesus. This fire was visible, not in the singular way that the pillar of fire had been seen by the people of Israel as they gathered in the desert, not in the frightful way that fire leapt out on Mount Horeb when Moses met with God, but in a shared way, resting on those whom God had chosen for this time. Fire that did not consume, like the fire in Moses' burning bush, but nevertheless denoted God's holiness and his righteousness. Remember, Christian, that in the presence of God, all our desires, all our sinful urges, all our wrong words and wrong thoughts must be submitted to the flames. The fire of the Holy Spirit is to burn brightly from us. People should be able to see his light within us, Oh, Heavenly Father, we might cry, burn away the chaff and the idols in our lives. Amen and Amen, Lord Jesus. Then again, at Pentecost, demonstrated to us in Acts chapter 2, there was the sound of a rushing wind. Now, God's voice is always depicted, often depicted, as the voice of the rushing wind. His power is demonstrated to Elijah in the destructive wind in 1 Kings 19, although God was not in the wind. I used to live on the west coast of Cumbria. I have a vivid memory of first arriving there and really noticing the trees all bending one way. Large 200-year-old trees, oak and huge sycamores, all bent to the force of the wind. I remember walking with a group of young and strong instructors not very long ago and watching most of them one by one being bowled over by the force of the wind on Coniston, old man. But Jesus promises that all who are born again will be guided. Perhaps they'll be bent, they'll be blown over, but they'll be guided by the wind in whichever direction the wind chooses. Of course, he's talking about the nature of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is ever 
co-eternal with the Father and the Son, as we read in the Creed, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, but that he, the Holy Spirit, although he is with the Father, he and he is in the Father, he also has his own being and life. And the Holy Spirit arrived at Pentecost to bring life and vigour and direction to the people God has called to himself. Lord, in all our organisation, in all the business of making things tick along at church and in our daily lives, may we be directed by the wind of your spirit. Amen, Lord Jesus. Well, our second point is that God reversed a judgment over the earth at Pentecost. Now, so many years beforehand in the book of Genesis, humankind had tried to unite in building a monument to glorify humankind itself. And God turned the languages of the world into a babble at Babel. Because people couldn't understand each other, they couldn't work together. Now, Wittgenstein thought he'd hit upon a great idea, that imagine a lion could speak our language. We still couldn't understand each other. We couldn't understand each other's pain. We couldn't understand each other's motivation. Well, I'm not clever enough to take on Wittgenstein, but it occurs to me that he simply describes what happened in the judgment of God at Babel. We lost our ability to understand one another. We lost our ability to understand pain and motivation. But here, in the upper room in Jerusalem, God was giving tongue to a newly united language, the language of the good news. That God sent Jesus, that people shamefully treated him, and put him to death, and that God raised him from the dead, that God calls all people everywhere to repent and be baptised, was being spoken in the language that everybody could understand, whether they were native to Jerusalem or from the diaspora around the world speaking different languages. And this is what the people heard, the good news, in their own language. And they also heard another thing, that God had decided to reverse a judgment, to forgive a wrong and remove an obstacle to understanding, the obstacle to their understanding the good news. And Peter is very clear, we aren't drunk as you suppose. Though how people thought that they would get more coherent or more able to speak in a foreign language when they're intoxicated seems a bit far-fetched. We aren't drunk, says Peter. This has happened in fulfilment of God's promise made in the prophet, in the book of the prophet Joel. We need to ask God to open our mouths to show forth his praise. We need to be filled with his Holy Spirit so that we can speak the language of salvation telling people round us the good news about Jesus. This is the language that Paul calls the foolishness of the cross. This is the language that brings people back to themselves, that calls them to life. This is the heavenly language that can drown 
all music but its own. Now, lots of people have allowed the argument about the gift of tongues to shroud our understanding of the day of Pentecost. At Pentecost, when God's Holy Spirit baptised the people in that room in that time, he set a new precedent that all who are baptised in his Holy Spirit are enabled to speak the divine language of salvation, that Jesus died, he rose again, and he calls people everywhere to repent and be baptised. You see, the Holy Spirit came to bring clarity, not confusion. He brought clarity to the message bearers, the witnesses. They knew that this was the, what the promised moment, that this was the promised moment as Peter explains, and he effectively says, this is the great day of the Lord. Are you confused, Christian? Are you in any way doubting or dismayed? Have you got a view that God is basically there, that the resurrection happened, but that there is so much about him that has escaped you. The baptism of the Holy Spirit brings absolute clarity to you about who you are and about what God has done in fulfilment of his promise. God was bringing good news to the nations. He was awaking his witnesses to be message bearers the disciples who became the apostles, the disciples transition, don't they? They transform into apostles in Acts chapter 2. They were the sent ones. They learned to think of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as the true test of belief. In the book of Acts, time and again, the apostles witness as God fills and drenches new believers with his power through the Holy Spirit and houses are shaken, prophecies are made, wonders are witnessed, but more than anything, after each event, there is certainty that God has approved. He's put his seal on the believer, whether from the Jewish nation or from among the Gentiles, remembering, of course, that Jesus said, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the world. There's been a great deal of confusion created by Christians about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's not the work of God, but the work of humankind. You see, we love to make rules. We love to say, well, if this happened then, that's how it should happen today. But we have to be careful. We need to remember that the Holy Spirit is like the wind who comes and goes as he pleases. He's entirely unrestrained and he's entirely unimpressed by our attempts to say this is what the baptism of the Holy Spirit looks like. Anything else is wrong. Now, why talk about that when we're talking about the message, the clear message that God was sending his uh apostles out with well because clarity is so important to the believer clarity of belief how do we make sense of the holy spirit how do we connect with this clarity in acts chapter 2 that came at the first pentecost well i think here are some clear pointers first the holy spirit comes in a way that's easy to see 
He's not the secret spirit. He's not the choosy spirit. He doesn't leave us in doubt about his presence. Secondly, the Holy Spirit points to the news of the gospel. Christ died. Christ is risen. Repent and believe. That's the message of the cross. Thirdly, there's a change that happens in the believer. The work of the Holy Spirit is clearly within us and among us. And while the work of Jesus was external to some degree, and we have to be careful about this, but he, he did what he only could do. But the Holy Spirit brings internal change and revolution so that the words of Jesus actually come to have foundation and meaning in our lives. Fourthly, the Holy Spirit, Spirit brings life. We see how these early disciples become motivated, they become missional, they become bold. That's the Christian life. That's a Christian learning really to live. Fifthly, this is so important. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He cannot lie. He cannot change things that are true in the Bible. There is absolute truth in him. Well, what does this amount to? That those early disciples who became the apostles, who were baptised on this day, on Pentecost Day, 50 days uh, after the crucifixion of Jesus, they were changed into uh, agents of change. And their new work was to tell the world. I don't pretend to say anything new. Nothing that hasn't been said before. And I don't really want to. I just want to be faithful in saying that whatever the future holds, whatever the church is capable of organising, whatever comes next, we still have a mission. It's a mission to witness to our neighbours, our family, our city, our country and the nations of the earth themselves. God is on the move and we need to learn obedience to his word. But we cannot and we must not think that he's left us to do this on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to indwell, to infill, to inhabit our lives, to be our guide, our life and our motive. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, so aware that we need you to increase in us, to fill us, to vitalise us, to baptise us. Come to us and bring fire and wind. Enable us to speak a language that people can understand and help us, O oh God, to true clarity and to truth. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and change us by bringing us your life through him. Amen. Well, may Christ Jesus bless us in these days so that we are fixed in our position, so that we are filled with his ideas of truth and clarity and help us to become uh, those witnesses that he meant us always to be. I believe it was Billy Graham, but I'm not sure. He said something like this. Whatever 
this baptism of the Holy Spirit is, just get it. However it comes, just, you, 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 you need it. Well, I'm misquoting now, so I better be quiet. God bless you all and be with you in these times. Amen.